It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. On the web at 7thAvenueProject.com. And hello, this is the 7th Avenue Project Radio Show. I'm Robert Polly. You know, I get occasional feedback on this show from listeners, which I welcome. I love hearing from you guys. And one of the things I hear a surprising amount these days is how much at least some of you out there like the occasional pieces we do on theoretical physics. And I say surprising because the prevailing wisdom in the broadcast media, of which I guess I'm a part, however small, is that everything we present on science has to be really simple, really down-to-earth, and really brief. Keep it basic, keep it concrete, and for crying out loud, keep it short. All rules we brazenly violate on this show when we talk to theoretical physicists and allow ourselves to contemplate some of the most abstract and intangible and non-commonsensical questions imaginable. Well, today, encouraged by you, the listeners, who say yes to big thinking, yes to flights of fancy, and yes to unchained cogitation, we're going to muse on one of the most abstract problems in all of physics, the nature of time. We're going to ask, why does the universe have a direction from past to present to future? Why do events flow from one moment to the next? It might seem pointless to even ask. I mean, time is just a given, right? It's a necessary precondition. Without it, nothing would happen. That's what happening means. It means to happen in time. That's the way it's got to be. That's the way it's always been. End of story. Well, that, I guess, is what makes theoretical physicists different from those of us who tend to shrug our shoulders and move on. Physicists never stop asking why. And my guest today, Sean Carroll, is a good example He's a theoretical physicist at Caltech and the author of the recent book, From Eternity to Here, The Quest for the Ultimate Theory of Time. Sean is not content to take time at face value. In fact, he's not even satisfied with the idea that the Big Bang is the beginning of time. He wants to know what came before the Big Bang, which he thinks is a key to understanding what makes time itself tick. Well, I sat him down for a spell to describe a physicist's view of time, and to give us his own not-quite-ultimate theory. Sean, welcome. Thanks. My first question is, is why even bother wondering about time? For most of us, it's just a given. It's just a, a, a background condition that we operate against. Why is it problematic for a physicist like you? Well, this is actually a really good question, because time is not something that we automatically feel the need to investigate. It, it works for us, right? We know how to use time. We know how to get to dinner at 7 o'clock. We know what it means to say the TV show lasts an hour and so forth. But then the more that we understand time, the better as scientists, as physicists especially, we learn about time, the further its features get from our everyday experience. So what we're learning is that time at the fundamental level behaves very differently than time in our everyday world. And the real mystery is matching those up, reconciling how time works at the fundamental level, where, for example, there's no difference between the past and the future, with time as it works in our everyday lives, where the difference between the past and future is so obvious that we can't even conceive it not being there. Well, we're going to work our way down to the fundamental level that you're talking about. And let's start by um, contrasting two views of time, that of Isaac Newton mm -hmm. and the view that replaced that, that Einstein thought up, the relativistic view of time. Well, what was the view, the old Newtonian view? It's a pretty intuitively straightforward understanding of what goes on in the universe. You have space. Space is all around you. There's stuff at different points in space. That's what the universe is. It's objects located in space. Then there's time, which explains how the universe changes. That stuff that is in space moves, it evolves in time. Now, Einstein comes along and says all that is still true. There's still space, there's still time. But the additional ingredient is that how you divide up space-time into space versus time is now no, no longer absolute. 
different people will decide, oh, this is what I call time or this is what I call space. That's up to the observer. There's different people uh, at different places in the universe moving in different ways will divide the universe up into moments of time in different ways. That's, that's the special theory of relativity. That's his 1905 breakthrough, putting space and time together. In 1915, the general theory of relativity says that space and time are curved in on each other. And sometimes it's not even possible to divide up space-time into space versus time. So it really is one four-dimensional thing. And now we're stuck then with explaining why time seems so different to us than space in our everyday lives. So you said a four-dimensional thing. We can think of our world as having three dimensions of space, Mm -hmm. up, down, right, left, forward, back, and one dimension of time. That's right. And we sort of move around in this 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 container that I've just described. Well, now it's already getting tricky. Oh, I knew you were going to say that. that. Let's, let's stick with the simple idea just for the moment. Okay. We'll work from that, and then we'll get more complicated. If, if that were true, if my simplistic idea were true, then I could direct my motion along one of the space axes, or I could sort of direct it more into the time axis. I could move more in time, or I could move more in space. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Um, of course, more is up to the observer. That's what one of Einstein's mm-hmm, things. But mm-hmm. compared to what I would call space and time, if I'm sitting here stationary, what I would call stationary means I'm moving forward in time, but I'm stationary in space. I'm not changing my position. I'm still aging. I'm still moving forward in time one second per second. If uh, a rocket ship goes by at some high velocity, I would say they are moving more in space than I am. Uh, but, of course, they would say they're stationary, and they, and, I, and they would say that I'm moving. Right. So it's all relative to the observer. But relative to an observer, if you move more in space, you move less in time. That's right. So it's, uh, this is one of the differences between time and space. Uh, in space, just like, just like Einstein says about space and time, there's still something that is true in space that people sort of – is so obvious once again. People don't pay attention to it, which is that – You can travel from one point in space to another point in space. And if you ask, well, how far do you have to go to make that journey? It obviously depends on the journey that you take. You can go in a straight line. You can go in some twisty path. And a feature of space is that the straight line is always the shortest distance between those two points in space. One of the differences between space and time is that if you go between two events in the history of the universe... So you go between you know, this particular position at this particular time and that position some later time. The more you move, the faster you go around zipping close to the speed of light in circles and, and making some elaborate path, the less time you experience. So if I want to slow my clock down relative to yours and live longer than you, yeah. how would I do that? Well, there's different things to do. The simple thing, the cost-effective thing, is just put yourself in suspended animation and don't worry about (laughs) relativity or anything like that. But if you truly wanted your clocks to tick less, you know, to tick off less uh, minutes or hours, then there's two choices. One is go very close to the speed of light. Now, that's also already a little bit tricky because Einstein said that everyone is allowed to define speed relative to themselves. And the point is you have to go close to the speed of light and then come back. So you need to really accelerate. It's not just moving in a straight line. It's moving in some path that is accelerated a lot. That will give you a curly path through space-time and you will experience less time, which is completely equivalent to saying that from your point of view, you will leap into the future faster Mm -hmm. than I will sitting down here stationary. So moving fast is one way to do it. The other way is to deep go deep down into a gravitational field. So you move into the future a little bit faster if you're sitting here on Earth than if you're out in space, far away from the Earth's gravitational field. And you would move even faster if you went down close to the sun or even very close to a black hole. So if you were able to travel very close to a black hole, hover there for a little while, and then come back, the outside world would have experienced a tremendous amount of time when you have only experienced a little bit. Uh-huh. And, and, and in truth, those two things, going really fast, accelerating a lot, and going deep into a gravitational field, are about the, are the same thing, aren't they? They're closely related. They're two different ways to take shortcuts mm-hmm. into the future in this curved space-time in which we live. And slow down relative to those people who aren't moving. That's right. 
who aren't moving relative to you. Yeah. Now, the, now, where I went wrong earlier, and you pointed it out, and I brushed it aside for the moment, let's go back there. It was when I said moving through space-time, moving through what I called a container uh, of four dimensions, three dimensions of space, and one dimension of time. That's the way I like to think of it, because mm-hmm. it's about as far as my brain will stretch. <laughs> but it's wrong. Well, wrong is too strong a word, but it's certainly dangerous. Let's put it that way. We move through space, right? We have a velocity, or we don't, or we sit still. But when we use the word motion, we mean that we are changing our position in space as a function of time. At any moment of time, we're in a different point in space. But we don't move through space-time in quite the same way. We simply are at every different moment of time, but we're in a, a sort of a different configuration. So from the space-time point of view, we are not our three-dimensional bodies, right? From the space-time point of view, we are our four-dimensional histories, our world lines. We are a little baby that was born a certain years number of years ago, we are a teenager, we are, you know, a mature person or whatever. All of those things exist in space-time. But that thing, that that history of you or me that travels, that that travels is the wrong word, extends (laughs) through space-time, doesn't travel, it doesn't move. There it is. So from uh, to a physicist, and, and Einstein has some quotes along these lines, if you really internalize this way of thinking, the past and the future are equally real to the present. There is where I was in the past, where I am now, where I will be in the future. And those don't change. No matter when it is, where I will be at a certain date and a certain time is the same answer. So it's a little bit dangerous to say that we move through space-time. We move through space as a function of time. And that's why people you know, think about moving through time faster or slower. And I have to say, no, you move through time one second per second. Mm. That's, that's what it means. Mm. Um, so I think what you just described, this eternal present uh, consisting of all the states of all the things, what we call past, present, and future, all right. at once, that's block time, right? That's exactly called right, block yes, time. or eternalism, right. as opposed to presentism, which says the present exists, mm-hmm. the three-dimensional world we're in at this moment of time exists, and the past is something that we remember, the future is something we predict, but only right now really exists. Well, if this is true, if this is one true way of looking at the universe, then would it be okay to say, yeah, that's it exactly. Nothing really happens. There is all eternity stretched out before us with every possible state along the the world line or the history of every object. And the only thing that makes time what it is for us is us. It's psychological. We take a film of infinitely many frames that are all still frames, and instead we look at one at a time and we say, oh, I'm on this one. Now I'm on this one. Now I'm on this one. Now I'm on this one. And I remember those ones back there. I still can't see those ones up ahead. It's all a psychological phenomenon. I think that the phenomena, as you described it, is exactly right, except I would would hold back a little bit from saying it's all just psychological. Um, a computer could say the same thing, or some record-keeping device would, would have the same vocabulary if it had a vocabulary. In other words, things experience time in the same way. There's nothing special about being conscious or anything like that. And I think there's simply two different ways that we can both sensibly talk about space and time together. One is, at any moment, here we are, we have an anticipation of the future, a remembrance of the past, and we, you know, we feel as if we're moving. Another way of talking about exactly the same thing is to say, there exists me at this moment, me at that moment, me at the future moments. And they, they are equally real, even though I'm not experiencing them simultaneously. So I don't want to say that it's, it's just psychology or that, that, that it's right or wrong to think of it in um, either particular way. All I want to warn against is mixing up mm. the two ways mm. and using the vocabulary of motion through space mm. to describe what we do through time. So my question for you, though, is if, if the block time view is correct uh, or if it's justifiable, can't we just wash our hands then of one of the persistent questions about time that really bedevil a lot of people, including physicists like yourself, which is the arrow of time, the directionality of time. In the block time view, there is no arrow. There's no past, there's no future, there's just everything stretched out. (laughs) No, I don't think that's right. I think that there's definitely an arrow in the block time view in the sense that there is a sequence, right? It matters what order those movie frames appear in. You can't just cut up the film and rearrange it and expect for it to make just as much sense. 
even if you think that all moments are equally real, there is still an order that those mm. moments appear in. Mm. And at every moment, there's a difference between the past of that moment and the future of that moment. So there really is an arrow of time, you know, even if the block time thing is real, which I think it is, we still need to explain why that sequence of moments has a directionality. Why, from any one point of view, the the previous or the future moments are so very different. Why there's a definite order in which things tend to occur. Yeah. For instance, an object at point A doesn't end up at point C without passing through point B, at least a classical object. Well, that's a true statement, but it's not quite the arrow of time because you could reverse the movie and mm-hmm. you would never notice, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If you take a simple thing, like a pendulum rocking back and forth or the moon go- going around the earth, and you make a movie of it, and you play it backwards, it looks okay. There's nothing that is that is startling. What really imprints the arrow of time on the universe is that there are processes which only happen in one direction of time. Breaking an egg and making scrambled eggs happens. Scrambled eggs do not turn into unbroken eggs. Uh, you can mix coffee and cream together. You cannot unmix them. If you break a glass, you cannot unbreak it. There's a million different things that happen in the universe, which if you were to be played the movie of that backwards, it'd be obvious that this doesn't happen consistently throughout all the universe that we observe. And that's really the arrow of time, the accumulated effect of all these different irreversible processes. Now, you've just talked about directionality, a definite arrow of time pointing in one direction, thanks to these processes that tend to go one way and not the other way. And we'll get deeply into them, egg scrambling, coffee and milk, all of that. I first want to reconcile this with something else you say in your book, which is that the underlying laws of nature, I'm quoting, don't have a preferred direction of time any more than they do of space. That's right. We can move forward and back according to the fundamental Mm -hmm. laws in time just as I move right, left, forward, back, up and down in space. Well, that's right. And this is um, a distinction that became clear when we went from, let's say, Aristotelian physics to Newtonian physics. Uh, to Aristotle, you know, the past is different from the future. There's just no nothing to be explained. Uh, if you don't keep pushing on an object, it will stop. Okay, uh, that's an irreversible process. To Newton, things that are moving will keep moving in a straight line unless you do something to them. And when you see, you know, something slow down and come to a stop, it's because you're doing something to it. The world is doing something to it. It's losing energy. It's dissipating heat and and, and motion and so forth. And Newton's way of thinking about physics had the absolutely amazing consequence that if you tell me what the system is doing right now, whether the system is the Earth or a baseball or whatever, I can predict both what it will be doing at any point in the future and what it was doing at any point in the past. And the kinds of ways that I would make those predictions are exactly the same. There's no arrow of time in Newton's laws of physics. The the past and future are, are completely interchangeable with each other. And so now you have a puzzle you didn't have before. So if that's true, if the laws of physics are reversible, why do we have irreversibility all around us? Um, And it's not just true of Newton's laws. It's true of -of state-of-the-art physics today. It stays true whether you're Newton or Maxwell with electromagnetism or um, Schrodinger with quantum mechanics or Ed Witten with superstring theory, Einstein with general relativity. All of these laws, as far as we understand them, have the feature that at the deepest level, they're reversible, that, that you can go forward and backwards equally well. There's no absolute difference between past and future. And it's, it is absolutely the same feature as the, the fact that if you're far away from the Earth, if you're floating in space— There's no directionality to space. There's no difference between up, down, left, right, forward, backward. And that sort of makes sense to us. Uh, We think, well, here on Earth, there's a direction to space. There's up and down. These are special. These are different than left and right. But we all know that's because the Earth is here. Right. Uh, But if we were out in space, far away from the influence of the Earth, in that pure environment, there'd be no arrow of space. Mm Mm-hmm. Likewise, you know, we live in a messy universe, and we can go into the details, but it's the messiness of the universe that imprints the arrow of time on all these um, processes around us. The pure physics of it is that the past and future are absolutely equivalent. Well, we'll talk about messiness in just a few seconds, but one last question about reversibility. It's not an absolute law of physics that things have to be truly reversible. It's just the way they they turned out uh, so far as far as we know. Well, you know, it is true that we don't know what the very final laws of physics are. Mm -hmm. You know, we're working at a provisional level. Um, So 
one thing that you could explore, one avenue for trying to reconcile these puzzles. Why are the fundamental laws of physics reversible but not the world around us? is to say, well, maybe the fundamental laws of physics are not really reversible. Maybe we just don't know what the fundamental laws are yet. I'm highly skeptical myself that that is a, uh, an interesting direction in which to move because whether or not the fundamental laws of physics are completely 100% metaphysically reversible, they're certainly pretty darn reversible. You know, It certainly works to a very, very good approximation, whereas the world around us isn't anywhere near reversible. Mm. So I think we need a much more powerful explanation to tell us why the fundamental laws of physics, or at least the laws of physics that we can use in our everyday lives, seem to not have an arrow of time, but the world in which we live so obviously has an arrow. Now, now there is a law, though, or something like a law that that sort of ordains reversibility, isn't there? That is the conservation of information? That's right. Conservation of information is this idea that came with Newton, although he himself didn't put it that way. It was, it was uh, Pierre-Simon Laplace, a French uh, mathematician and philosopher, who really figured out that um, if you know the state of the universe right now, in principle, you can figure it out in the past and in the future. That would not have been true in Aristotle's view of the universe, because Aristotle says if you don't keep pushing on something, it will stop. So when you see something that has stopped, you don't know. Was it moving before and mm. just stopped, or, mm. or was it just sitting there for a long time? It, it, you, it would have no trace of its previous state. Exactly right. You can't reconstruct the past. Mm-hmm. Information was lost mm-hmm. in Aristotle's mm-hmm. universe. And, you know, it's most computer programs lose information. If I say, you know, add two numbers, add two and two to get four, okay, you can do that. All right, I have four. What are the two numbers you added mm-hmm. to get it? You don't know, mm-hmm. right? You've lost information by mm-hmm. doing that. Mm-hmm. So it's certainly very conceivable that other laws of physics, other than the ones we seem to be stuck with, could lose information. Uh, But the real world seems to conserve information from moment to moment. It might become easier or harder to get. Uh, There's a sort of effective loss of information. When you take a book and you burn it, it's hard to know what was in that book. But if you, in principle, captured every scrap of uh, radiation that came out and all the ashes that came out of that book, the information is secretly still there. And this is the Seventh Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and today the subject is time from a physicist's point of view. The physicist I'm talking to is Sean Carroll of Caltech University, and he's the author of From Eternity to Here, The Quest for the Ultimate Theory of Time. And just a heads up, in a moment, Sean is going to drop a name. It's Boltzmann. That's Ludwig Boltzmann, the great 19th century physicist and discoverer of the second law of thermodynamics, more about which momentarily. Well, let's get to the bush that you've been beating around for the last couple of questions, which I'm going to give a name to, entropy. The fact that there is one thing in the universe that tends to go in one direction and not the other. And that is the increase in entropy. First question, real easy one. Define entropy for us. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, entropy has almost become too common, I think, even though no one really claims to know what it is. The word. The word yeah. we've all heard. Mm-hmm. Um, and the remarkableness of the concept uh, sometimes gets glossed over. So it's worth sort of really just appreciating it. You know, roughly speaking, people say, and I think it's okay to say, entropy measures how disorderly things are, um, how disorganized things are. If you imagine um, that you have a, a pile of papers on your desk and they are neatly organized, that is low entropy. They're organized. There's very little disorder there. And with time and, you know, things are bumping into them and so forth, those papers are going to become scattered across your desk. And indeed, the entropy will go up. That is much more disorganized to have papers scattered across your desk than to have them neatly arranged. And you will notice uh, by doing the experiment that if you start with the papers scattered and you wait, they will not organize themselves uh, into a lower entropy state. So things becoming more and more disorderly is one way in which the universe manifests irreversibility. Things only become more disorderly. They don't organize themselves spontaneously. Uh, scrambled eggs don't reconstitute themselves into eggs. That's right. With a nice yolk and a nice white and a they shell. They don't. As far as we know, you know, broken glasses don't heal themselves, uh, etc. If you and I were to arrange all the chairs in this room in a perfect row and then let a bunch of people sort of wander around, sit down, etc., they're likely to end up in something other than neat rows. That's right. So that's 
the common understanding of entropy, that things that are subjected to sort of random processes will tend to get more and more disorderly until they're in a perfect kind of state of of mixed upness, yes. you know? That's right. That's and right, they yeah. won't tend to go back to being orderly. But we can imagine a case where people wandering through this room accidentally bump all the chairs and they're in a nice, neat row. So it's not impossible. Right. So it's a likelihood. That is, because there's more ways to be messy than there are to be neat, that things will end up getting messier. Nine times out of ten, 99 times out of 100, and, and so on. It's going to end up messier. That's right. This is Boltzmann's insight that... The second law of thermodynamics, which is the law of physics, that's the name that we attach to this idea that in, a, in an isolated system, disorder will increase. The entropy will go up. That's the second law of thermodynamics. The first law is just that energy is conserved. Um, and Boltzmann said, you know what? That's not really a law. It's just a good idea. It's just something that is usually going to be true <laughs> because if you, uh, there's a lot more ways to be messy. It's a matter of odds, really. It's a matter of odds. So, if you, it, so one way of putting it is if you take the air in a room. High entropy means it's it's more or less spread evenly throughout the room. If, if the, all the air were concentrated in one little corner, there's only a small number of ways of doing that. That's organized. That's low entropy. But if you waited long enough, the random motions of the air molecules in this room would eventually, if you waited a long, long, long time, much longer than the age of the universe, bring them just by chance to a configuration where they're all in one corner of the room. So Boltzmann said... The idea that entropy goes up is not absolute. It's just very, very, very likely. So basically, we look around us and we see certain kinds of things happening all the time and other kinds of things never happening. We see eggs get scrambled, but eggs never unscramble. We see rocks rolling down hills, but we never see them roll up hills. We never see the thing that I so loved in in my fourth grade science class when the teacher would run films backwards. And Mm -hmm. for instance... A guy would um, pluck pieces of donut out of his mouth and recreate a donut. We just don't see that happen. That's right. I didn't realize that the teacher, who was a great teacher, by the way, was teaching me about entropy and time. Yes. And and one of the amazing things about this, which I think we don't appreciate quite enough, is that on the one hand, like you say, there's many different irreversible processes. I mean, the ones we're mentioning are sort of the down-to-earth ones, but... We remember the past, and we don't remember the future. That's a manifestation of the arrow of time. We're born young, we grow older, and then we die. It's always in that order. No one dies first and then lives and then is born, right? Um, Cause and effect. I can make a choice right now that affects what happens tomorrow. I can't make a choice right now that affects what happened yesterday. Mm -hmm. So clearly there's many different ways in which the past and future act differently to us in the real world. And we're going to make the extremely dramatic claim that it all comes down to entropy, that every single one of those differences between the past and the future can ultimately be understood by the fact that entropy is increasing toward the future. So entropy, in your view, is what gives time a direction. The increase of entropy. The increase, the inevitable inexorable increase in entropy. Yeah. Um, before I completely buy this, let me just propose to you a couple of sure. problems I have with that. Um, as I look around me, yes, I see the things we've just described, the world becoming messy, but I also see examples of the opposite. I do see things getting more orderly in places. Mm-hmm. I do see people uh, taking water that's all mixed up and freezing it into nice ice cubes. I see all kinds of processes. Now, during those moments when I see something that doesn't appear like the increase in entropy, I don't suddenly think time's going backwards. That's right. You don't. I don't. (laughs) Not only that, but all these processes we've been talking about take place in time. Mm -hmm. So how do they give time directionality? Well, time exists just like space exists without a direction. Mm -hmm. Time is a label that distinguishes the different moments in the history of the Mm -hmm. universe. But without entropy, without matter arranging and rearranging itself, generally tending toward more disorganized configurations, there wouldn't be any difference between one moment and another overall. They'd mm. be different at a small mm. level. Um, you know, you could be here, then you could be there. Mm-hmm. But you wouldn't, again, if the movie were played backwards, it wouldn't look weird to you. But we, I guess what I'm struggling with is almost maybe a psychological or perceptual question, which is we have this feeling absolutely that the clock is ticking forward at all times. Everything's moving forward. I mean, it's, it's not something we can ever escape. Right. And yet we could stage a scenario in this room right now that would look anti-entropic, mm-hmm. right? We could have all kinds of things becoming more orderly. You could walk backwards into this room. I wouldn't suddenly feel like like that didn't happen in a forward direction. No, that, that that's very true, and that, and there is a um, 
this is a, a debatable topic. We've, we've reached what we truly understand, the edge of it, and uh, people don't quite know what exactly how to best talk about this but roughly speaking you know it's true if you put an ice cube in a glass of water it will melt and the entropy will go up if you waited long enough that ice cube would spontaneously reform but you have to wait much longer in the age of the universe however we do not think that the fact that entropy goes up rules out the existence of refrigerators mm -hmm. or freezers mm -hmm. right you can lower the entropy in things mm -hmm. and there's there's two things going on here one kind of simple and the other one uh, a little bit more profound the simple thing is that the systems we're talking about where the entropy goes down are not isolated True. You can't have the refrigerator all by itself uh, in the world. The refrigerator gives off heat. It takes out energy. It increases the entropy of the universe while decreasing the entropy of that glass of water that it's going to turn into an ice cube. But you're saying that not even locally where that thing that's fighting against entropy is happening, not even lo locally is time somehow reversing its direction. No, that's right. So in those cases, when the entropy does go down, why don't I think the time is going backwards, right? Mm -hmm. And there it gets into a microscopic question of the way in which the entropy is going down. Uh, you would not only need to, like if you stand in a refrigerator, uh, some giant, you know, uh, um, uh, frozen meat room or something like that, the entropy of you plus the, the room could go down, but you're not going backward in time. And that's because within you, there's still individual processes that are increasing the entropy. Your brain, your central nervous system, your metabolism, they're sort of still locally using the fact that you're not in equilibrium. Your personal entropy mm. can go up. Mm. And so it, it would require much more than to simply grossly lower the entropy of some system to really reverse the arrow of time. You would really have to delicately arrange every molecule in your body so that consistently entropy was going down in every process that, that, that constituted you. And that's something that we are just nowhere near being able to do. And certainly jumping inside a refrigerator will not do it. You know, I might have been uh, straying again into the... Um into the field of psychology, of cognition, mm -hmm. when, when I was thinking, because I'm, what I'm thinking is we, part of what we're trying to explain in a way, I think, is why we humans have this sense that time marches forward always, inexorably. Right. And we have a built-in entropy detector, not only one that senses our local entropy, which can decrease, but the, the total sum of entropy <laughs> in the universe? It's not quite like that, but what we do is our way of perceiving the world, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we have a built-in assumption that mm -hmm. the entropy was lower. Mm -hmm. That's, the, that's the, the crucial thing. If you think about the example I use in my book is you're walking down the street and you see an egg broken on the sidewalk. Okay, So you see something in a moment right now. And we're going to ask, well, what is the difference between the future of that egg and the past of that egg? Mm -hmm. And again, the fundamental laws of physics say there's no difference. Whatever the future could be, the past could have been just going backwards in time. But in the real world, you know better than that. And the answer is that the future is kind of open. There's lots of things that could happen. It could wash away. A dog could come along and eat the egg. It could be hot outside and the egg could cook there right on the sidewalk. But you know that in the past, it was an unbroken egg. Right, And why do you know that? Because you're implicitly imagining that you live in a universe where entropy is increasing. The unbroken egg had a lower entropy. The, all these different future possibilities have higher entropies. So even though you're given information about the universe right now, the way you extrapolate that into the future and past always assumes the arrow of time. You're always assuming that the sensible past is the one where the entropy was lower. You're not assuming that a dog who had already eaten the egg came along and vomited it up into a sort of a raw egg on the on the sidewalk. That would decrease the entropy. It's allowed by the fundamental laws of physics, but not by the second law of thermodynamics. So our brain is wired in such a way to implicitly make use of the arrow of time in the way that we think about the world. And because we do, unless we're deluded or on drugs, generally imagine the past as this orderly process where things go from point A to point C via point B, where you didn't just materialize in this room out of nowhere, but you walked into it, you have a history. Mm -hmm. All of that way in which we perceive the past and perceive the future going forward actually has a built-in assumption about entropy in it. Absolutely. That's right. It does, because if, if all you know is that uh, there's a, a history book in your hands, 
that says that Napoleon existed and conquered most of Europe and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and you also know the state of the world today in a gross form. You know, you know, what, you know the, where the earth is and what the continents are and so forth. What do you conclude from the existence of that history book? Certainly you can't conclude that there actually existed someone named Napoleon who actually did conquer Europe, right? All by itself, that information is nowhere near good enough. Um, you need an extra assumption about the reliability of that historical record. And secretly, that reliability assumption relies on the existence of a low-entropy assumption about the past. Mm -hmm. So yeah, another way to put it is uh, Carl Sagan famously said, to, um, to construct an apple, I think it was, you must first make the universe. But he's not right, actually. Uh, in the real world, the way that you make an apple is first you make the universe and then a seed and then it grows into an apple mm -hmm, and so forth. Mm -hmm. But if you could choose any possible way to make an apple without really bringing the baggage of the universe along with you, it'd be much easier to just make the apple atom by atom than to first make a universe with apple trees in it, right? So, so that's, it's, that's a true statement about the laws of physics. It's completely at odds with every way we think about the world because the arrow of time is just such a part of our conscious perceptions. Well, as long as we're talking about hypothetical nonsensical scenarios like creating an apple mm -hmm. atom by atom. Let's talk about one of the craziest things physicists have discussed uh, that I've ever heard of, Boltzmann brains. Yes. This actually made a bit of a splash a couple of years ago when That's the subject right. was discussed in the New York Times. Um, the idea being that, yes, in general, things proceed in an orderly fashion, and uh, when we see a complex structure, it has evolved over time into what it is today. That given that things move around rather randomly, and given that maybe the universe exists for an infinite amount of time, every possible combination of atoms, of particles, will sooner or later be tried out, however right. briefly, that mm -hmm. you could, in fact, have things materializing out of nothing randomly, like a brain in outer space. Yes. And that the, the most important thing is that it would be easier to have that brain materialize than to have the whole universe materialize. So this was a, a, a scenario, this assumption the universe lasts forever, there's just things randomly bumping into each other. This scenario was proposed quite seriously by Ludwig Boltzmann, the father of entropy in uh, the 1890s. And remember, he didn't know about relativity, right? He mm -hmm. didn't know about general relativity, the expanding universe, the Big Bang. Right. He was a Newtonian as far as space and time were so, concerned. So in asking how did things get to be the way they are, one possibility is, well, this was just a throw of the dice. All the atoms came together in just this way, and we happen to be here. Just an accident. That's right. And he thought the universe lasted forever. He didn't think there was a beginning or an end. So if the universe lasts forever, then everything will eventually happen. Mm -hmm. You know, if there are a finite number of things that could happen, so a finite number of arrangement of some fixed set of molecules and atoms, they will arrange themselves in every possible way, given enough time. And Pigs will fly. Pigs, pigs will, will fly. fly. But so what Boltzmann actually said <laughs> was, well, maybe the universe is like that. What he, he called the galaxy because he didn't know about there were other galaxies. But he said maybe our galaxy is just a random fluctuation out of the surrounding chaos. And this is a perfectly sensible suggestion because otherwise we're still stuck with why was the early universe so organized? Well, maybe most of the time it's not. But Boltzmann uses the anthropic principle, basically. He, you know, the anthropic principle says if the universe has lots of different conditions from place to place, from moment to moment, Clearly, we will only find ourselves observing those conditions that are compatible with our existence, right? And equilibrium, high entropy, is not compatible with our existence. We really rely on the increase of entropy to be alive, to be human. So even though Boltzmann said in most of the universe, you're in equilibrium, there's nothing there, we will necessarily find ourselves in that rare part of the universe where the entropy has gone down is now coming back up. Sadly, it doesn't work. This is, the cru this is where the Boltzmann brains come in. This scenario isn't right because if that's true, if the universe lasts forever and there's just sort of random motions and you would occasionally make galaxies and universes, that's true. But you would much more frequently make just the Earth rather than a whole galaxy, right? Much easier to make one star in one planet than to make 100 billion stars in the galaxy or 100 billion galaxies in the universe. So you would predict with incredible precision, if this scenario were right, that you would have the Earth and maybe the Sun. You would not have the rest of the stars in the galaxy, the rest of the galaxies in the universe. It would be a small fluctuation of entropy, not a large one. But wait, 
I mean, I, I don't want to get too deep into what could sound like an acid trip at this point, but if you have all infinity mm-hmm. and everything that can happen will happen, that's right. however briefly, yes, you will have a scenario where a brain materializes in outer space. You'll have another scenario in which an, an Earth materializes with people on it, but nothing else mm-hmm. in the middle of chaos. Yes. And you will have a scenario that's like the one we're sitting in right now where we have a visible universe that extends for billions of light years and includes us and includes galaxies and planets. and So So you'll have that scenario. That's right. And in that scenario, you'll have two guys like you and me sitting there saying, yes. maybe we materialized out of nowhere. And those yes, two guys would right. be right. That's right. <laughs> well, they would materialize, you know... This is the this is it boggles the mind. I understand. Uh, it's much better than the acid trip because it's, we have equations and they don't. But at least they the, don't remember their equations. <laughs> you don't remember the equations. You can compare using these equations the number of times things happen one way versus another way. That's the crucial thing. And the point is that you predict small fluctuations a lot more often than large fluctuations. So, given that you and I are here talking to each other, and given that not only are we here in this room. But we have memories. We have impressions of what's outside this room. We think that there's something called California and something called the United States. Uh, In the space of all the possible ways that that could happen, you, me, in this room with those memories, in the overwhelming majority of them, there's no such thing as California. There's no such thing as the United States or the Earth or anything like that. They just randomly fluctuate into Mm -hmm, our brains. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so this theory makes a prediction. And that prediction is false. That The prediction is that outside what we're looking at right now, everything is in thermal equilibrium. Every time you open the door and look outside, you falsify this theory. So, But it was that's a correct prediction within that theory. So there's something wrong about that theory. Okay, okay, Sean, before I let this go completely, you're saying that that theory is likely wrong. Not that we could not conceive a scenario where Sean Carroll and Robert Polly are sitting in a room having materialized out of the void – because of the random fluctuations of atoms, uh, along with the rest of the visible universe all at once with their memories and their ideas all intact, and it's nothing more than pure a pure crapshoot. Could happen. Could happen. Incredibly unlikely. Far more likely, if you're going to imagine a scenario like this, is that we materialize, but everything out there beyond us is in total entropic state, you know, a total mess. Uh, Not that it isn't messy out there. Okay, so... Let, let's just go with that for now, even though I, I guess a, a Boltzmann skeptic uh, could always propose that. Well, but I want to I say something a little bit stronger than okay, that okay. because it, it is, everything you said is true, that this theory is a, a plausible theory, and in that theory this would happen, these crazy uh, improbable things would happen. However, I will go another step and say I, there's no way that I can legitimately believe that I am a recent random fluctuation out of the chaos. And that's because if I were, then included in the recent random fluctuation is all of my reasons to believe in the laws of physics, the laws of logic, the laws of uh, mathematics that I used to reconstruct this possibility. So I can't rule out the possibility that the world exists and has all these random fluctuations. But also I can never conclude that that is how the world works. Mm. It is not a consistent Mm worldview. Mm. So either I'm stuck in some absolutely radical skepticism and I can say nothing. I say, well, you know, who knows? (laughs) That's it. Doing physics is a waste of time. Or I can say, well, maybe that's not how the universe is. Maybe the universe does not last forever with an infinite number of fluctuations. Maybe we need to think harder about it and make some progress. And so I choose option well, your way is undoubtedly much more responsible, and I'm going to go with it. So your your way, and that of any sensible physicist I can think of, would be to wonder then, how is it that we got a universe that allowed this amount of order to occur that we see around us? That's right. And that couldn't have happened or is infinitesimally unlikely to have happened if that universe started out in a totally random state. That's you don't right. see... Eggs forming out of omelets, uh, you know, and this would be the egg of all eggs to f- formed mm-hmm. out of the largest omelet in the world. Universal egg, yes. <laughs> the universe egg. So what we're stuck with is this idea that long ago, way back when, there must have been a very low entropy state. You know, in order for entropy to continue to increase and lead to a state as orderly as it is now, it must have been really orderly back way back when. That's exactly right. So that's sort of the logical conclusion you would draw. And then, indeed, you go look 
at the early universe with your telescopes, and it's very, very orderly. It's extremely orderly compared to the universe today. So 13.7 billion years ago, near the Big Bang, the entropy of the universe we see was enormously smaller than it had any right to be. So in other words, if the universe were chosen randomly, it's incredibly unlikely it would have looked like that. Therefore, I think that it's safe to say, the early universe was not chosen randomly. There's some reason why it was like that. And then it's a cosmology problem. Then it's, it's my job and you know Roger Penrose's job and Stephen Hawking's job to figure out why the early universe was such an unusual arrangement of the stuff it was made out of. I want to clarify that when you said when we look at the early universe through our telescopes, that is, when we look long distances into space— we are essentially picking up light that has traveled a very, very long time and thus reflects the state of the universe many, many, many years ago. Exactly. So you right. use we a really powerful telescope, you're looking back in phase time. of the universe. That's right, yeah. Uh, so, and it was smoother. Um, this is this is a, a little bit of a, a technicality that, that does confuse people. If you think about the air in this room, once again, smoothness is high entropy. Smoothness is disorderly. If yeah. we were all in one little bundle, that would be weird and, and, and low entropy. Mm-hmm. The universe doesn't quite work that way, and the reason why is because of gravity. So in our early universe, it was actually much smoother, and structure grew. As time went on in the history of the universe, the contrast knob got turned up. Slightly overdense regions gathered more matter around them, and they became more dense compared to their surroundings. And so out of an initially smooth collection of matter and radiation, you made galaxies, you made stars, you made planets. The universe became lumpier. Okay, so... Our ordinary idea is entropy is always increasing. Entropy takes things that are lumpy and have structure and flattens them out into just a completely dissipated soup. So how is it that we went from smooth to lumpy and structured without decreasing entropy? It's because the conditions in the universe are very different than the conditions in this room, the conditions overall, and just because there's so much more stuff. So when we talk about the air in this room, uh, the gravity that Earth is exerting on the air in this room is important. It's not very important. You know, the density at the floor is not so different than the density at the ceiling. Mm. But the gravitational pull of the air molecules on other air molecules is completely negligible. You would never even think to uh, calculate that if you're doing some homework problem about the, what the air molecules are going to do. But in the universe, that's not true. There's enough molecules, there's enough atoms, there's enough matter that its mutual gravitational force is actually the most important feature of its dynamics. And when that is true, when you're in that regime where you have so much stuff, the density is high enough that things want to pull together under their mutual gravity, then high entropy means lumpy. It does not mean smooth. Mm. So our early universe looks smooth but it's not high entropy. It's actually very, very delicately arranged to keep it like that. I see. So we haven't violated the second law of thermodynamics by saying the early universe is smooth. No, not at all. But we're still wondering why it was so organized at the beginning. And my answer, what do you think of this, is just because. That is a common answer, <laughs> I have to say. And it could even be correct. I mean, you know, as cosmologists, we're in this very unusual situation that there's only one universe to look at. Even astronomers who don't get to do experiments, right? They only get to do observations. But there's more than one star. <laughs> there's more than one galaxy. There's more than one example of the different phenomena they're looking at, supernovae, gamma ray bursts. But there's only one universe. So we don't know which aspects of the universe we see have explanations of the form. Well, it was like that because this happened. It was going to be like that, et cetera, et cetera. And which aspects are simply... Yeah, that's how it was, right? To me, the fact that the early universe had a low entropy is sort of numerically so fantastically, amazingly, mind-bogglingly unlikely that it couldn't be just because. I don't think it's a fruitful way to proceed. It, it might be true, and I'm happy to admit that it might be true, but to me, this is a clue. This is you know, some evidence at the scene of the crime, uh, probably the single biggest clue we have about what might have been going on when the universe was born near the Big Bang is that it was born in a low-entropy configuration. And to simply say, well, you know, that's just happened that way, no big deal, I think is missing a chance to really learn something more than what we already know. Uh, a chance to think about why the universe was the way it was at the moment of the Big Bang. Exactly right. A period that we really don't know anything about at all. 
We don't. We, uh, it, you know, I, I like to impress that we know a lot. You know, we know what the universe was doing one second after the Big Bang. And when I say no, I mean we have data that fits our theoretical understanding one second after the Big Bang. So that is that will never cease to amaze me. Here we are 13.7 billion years later. Data we in know. the form of the cosmic background radiation. Cosmic background radiation, even more particularly um, the abundance of helium and other light elements. Uh-huh. The early universe was a nuclear reactor. Uh-huh. And so we can predict how much helium we get versus hydrogen. We go back and look, and we get the right answer, and that's kind of amazing. Mm. We can extrapolate you know, much earlier than one second to tiny, tiny fractions of a second, but there we're just hypothesizing right now. And when we get to zero seconds, when we get to the Big Bang, we don't have no idea what's going on. That's why we're really just stretching our imaginations. So you and a number of other cosmologists have been thinking about this primordial moment uh, of the Big Bang and, and why the, this germinal universe, this thing that was going to be a universe, was the way it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to hear your theory and maybe a few that you disagree with. But first, a, a, a real um, sort of nuts and bolts question. Um, you actually have in your book estimates of the total entropy of the universe today, right? back then, at right. the beginning, and maybe ultimately when everything really is dissolved into a featureless soup and total equilibrium yes. and, and maximum entropy. And uh, the numbers, you can probably recite them from the top of your head. I can, yes. <laughs> Uh, the entropy of the early universe, for one thing, you have to make a little decision about what you're going to qualify as the observable universe. The universe is expanding, right? But the nice thing about the universe is it looks more or less the same far away as here. So if you sort of imagine drawing a, a hypothetical fence around the universe, what happens outside that fence doesn't really affect what happens inside. So if that if that fence expands along with the universe, we have a system that you can talk about consistently. By the way, when we say observable universe— we mean that part of the universe that is close enough to us for light to have traveled to us over the lifespan of the universe. Exactly right. I think yes. I put that in a clumsy way. No, I think that's but- exactly right. You know, we, we, there, we have a shield, a screen past which we can't see because light moves at one light year per year. The universe, you know, as we look back into it, things that are more and more light years away, we're looking at what they looked like earlier and earlier. So at some point, you're looking at what the universe looked like 13.7 billion years ago, and that was the Big Bang, and you can't see past that in, in practice or in principle. To see past it would be not only to see farther, but earlier. Yes, that's right, and so and we can't. Right, but there <laughs> might be something out there. It, there might have been an earlier, that's right. But and that earlier would be out there, but we could never see it, or we can't see it yet. <laughs> that's right. We can't see either earlier or further away. So both of those are, you know, that's that's the a limitation of the laws of physics okay. that we're stuck with. So the, the permanent asterisk on these kinds of conversations um, is that we're talking about the observable universe. The observable universe, yes. That's okay. Right. Yeah, so that's what the whole point was. I, I can't tell you the entropy of the whole universe. I can only tell you what the observable universe Great. did. I'll settle for that. That's that's good. And at early times, we know it was smooth, right? It was it was just a featureless gas. And that's something we know how to calculate the entropy of. You can use Boltzmann kind of equations that were known in the in the 1800s. And the answer is 10 to the 88th. Okay, that is one followed by 88 zeros. Yes. A very big number. It's a big number, yes. But it got bigger just because entropy increases. Entropy increases, so 10 to the 88th sounds big. Um, Stephen Hawking in the 1970s pointed out that there's another thing that we know how to calculate the entropy of. Uh, I just said we know how to calculate the entropy of featureless gas Mm -hmm. that the early universe was like. Hawking showed how to calculate the opposite regime, which is a black hole. You know, a black hole is sort of the most concentrated it can be. The early universe was as smooth as it can be. A black hole, Hawking says, has an entropy that is proportional to the area of the event horizon, the boundary of the black hole, which is in turn proportional to the, to the mass, uh, sorry, to the mass squared. The more mass you have, the larger the, the area is. And the way that it works out is that the entropy of a black hole is huge, so if you have the black hole at the center of our galaxy, we have a Milky Way galaxy with 100 billion stars. There's a million solar mass black hole at the center of our galaxy. We know where it is and we can see what it's doing. We can't see the black hole directly, but we know how much it weighs. And its entropy is about 10 to the 90th. So in other words, that one black hole has more entropy than the whole universe had at early times. And we're not the only galaxy with a black hole in it. There's at least 10 to the 10 
galaxies. So if you're keeping up at home, that's an entropy of the universe today of at least 10 to the 100, a, a 1 followed by 100 zeros. 10 to the 100 is a much bigger number than 10 to the 88. They're both big, but 10 to the 100 is much bigger. And then you can say there's different ways. We don't know enough, as much about the future. Um, but one way to say it is, well, what if you just took the maximum entropy you could have by taking all of the matter in the universe and making it one big black hole? What would it be? And the answer is approximately 10 to the 120. Again, much larger than 10 to the 100. So the entropy sounds like it was large at early times, but it really wasn't. It was much smaller than it is today, and even today it's much, much smaller than it will be in the future. You're probably so used to this by now that maybe it doesn't affect you the way it does me to hear someone casually tick off numbers that quantitatively describe the entire universe like that. Well, no, I I, I do it. I know what the numbers are, <laughs> but it never ceases to amaze me. So, um, uh, you know, these numbers, the fact that we can even with some semblance of respectability quote these numbers uh, is amazing. But, you know, it, it, to people who are skeptical that we have any idea what we're doing, uh, you know, if you try to change the ideas, if you say, well, maybe there's more stuff, maybe the universe, maybe that's not the entry of a black hole, you get in trouble. You know, you, we'd love to do something different and better. You know, you don't make progress as scientists by giving kudos to the people who came before you. You mm -hmm. make progress by showing why they were wrong. Mm -hmm. So if there's some better way to do it, we'd all love to find it. And it's hard. We know enough about the universe now to make some statements pretty firmly. And uh, the, the trick is sort of making those statements compatible with our cherished beliefs, uh, not uh, just ignoring the, the reality of the statements. Mm. Well, let's, um, as we approach the, uh, the real climax of this conversation, which is going to be some, some theories of why the early universe was the way it was, um, let's recap just a bit. We've said that really, you know, time is this sort of special um, dimension, may not be the right word, but this, this special function in the universe that has an earlier, a now, and a later. It seems to have a direction, an arrow, and the clearest candidate for establishing that arrow is the constant increase in entropy mm -hmm. over the lifespan of the universe. That's right. Entropy is increasing, 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 and that's why time is marching forward relentlessly. Yep. Right? Completely right. But that raises the question as to how can entropy increase and continue to increase if it didn't start a lot smaller than it is today? Right. Ergo, it started a lot smaller than it is today. Mm-hmm. All the, true. All right. Why? Why? That's Why? the big question. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, to be honest, it is the big question, but it's not as front and center in the minds of cosmologists today as I think it should be. I mean, I think that over the last couple of years, maybe it's it's become more of a pressing issue. Uh, one of the reasons why I wrote my book was to impress my colleagues about the importance of this question. I give a lot of credit to Roger Penrose, who has really since the 1970s been saying that this is the question that cosmology should be addressing. Um, you know, quantitatively, it's the most important fact about the universe, right? The, the past is different from the future. You don't need to leave this room to measure that fact, and it's because of the Big Bang. Uh, as far as answers are concerned, we're we're up in the air. Um, I, I have uh, an idea that I proposed uh, with my, with a student of mine, Jennifer Chen, and I proposed an idea in 2004. But you know, I'm not in love with my own idea. I think I, we could do better. Um, I, th I like my idea better than anyone else's idea. But uh, I think that we're not quite there yet because we don't quite have the tools yet to get it exactly right. Well, I'm going to dance with the one who brung me. So you tell me your idea and why you think it's better than some of the others. One way of thinking about my idea is to use the analogy of the egg that is a favorite entropy analogy. The egg breaks and the entropy goes up. But we said that we're surprised that the early universe has a low entropy. You're surprised that you, when you find something in a low entropy state because there aren't that many low entropy states. But you're not actually surprised when you open your refrigerator and find an egg in it. Uh, even though it's a low entropy configuration. And the reason you're not surprised is because the egg, again, is not alone in the universe. It came out of a chicken. Mm -hmm. It's part of a larger environment where the entropy is increasing. So maybe we can work the same magic with the whole universe. You can say that one way of approaching why the early universe had a low entropy is to say that it's not the whole universe. Maybe there is a pre-universe out of which our universe came. Maybe there's some reason why the creation of new universes favors creating low-entropy universes rather than high-entropy ones. So that's sort of a, a wishful thinking kind of um, 
uh, roadmap to what you want to do. But I think it's actually plausible. I think that could fit together. And then, so what you would want to do is to say, well, if you didn't know what the universe really did look like, what should it look like? If you really believed all of this stuff about how high entropy states are more likely and so forth, what would a high entropy universe look like? And I think that the answer is a little bit of a surprise. The answer is empty space, nothing at all. That's a high entropy universe. And if you're skeptical about that, just think about what is happening to our actual universe. It's expanding. It is cooling off. It is emptying out. And the entropy is going up. Empty space, once you believe in general relativity, Einstein's theory of gravity, where stuff affects the curvature of space-time, there aren't that many configurations that are really stable, that would just sit there. We expect a high entropy configuration to last a long time without changing into something else. If you put stuff in the universe, it starts expanding or contracting, right? This was Einstein's discovery way back when. So if the universe expands and empties out, then you reach a situation that can be stable. It can just stay there forever. It's empty space, right? Nothing is happening. No, no, it can't be totally empty, right? There's, there's a particle here, there's a particle there, but it's a very lonely place. You know, you bump into an atom or a proton or something now and then, but that's it. It becomes lonelier and lonelier. <laughs> it becomes to the point where there's less than one atom within your observable universe. Oh, my God. <laughs> so for all intents and purposes, it is empty. But you're right, because there's a feature that empty space has that we know now that we didn't know, 20 years ago, or certainly when Einstein was around, which is that empty space has energy in it. This was the discovery of dark energy in 1998. The universe is not only expanding, it's accelerating. There's something in empty space that is pushing galaxies apart. And that's amazing, and that's worth you know a whole lot of thought on the, on the part of theoretical physicists. But what it means is, number one, the universe is not going to recollapse. If the dark energy is, is really what we think it is, it's not going to go away. So the universe is going to expand forever. Uh, number two, all the stuff is going to empty out. It's going to become as dilute as it can possibly be, completely empty space. But number three, the temperature will not quite fall to zero. Even empty space has a kind of energy and activity in it. That's right. Quantum mechanics says that you can't quite pin down empty space to being completely quiet. Mm -hmm. There's always a little jiggle, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Mm. There's always a certain uncertainty in what even empty space is doing. And the way that shows up is that if you have dark energy, if there's energy in empty space, then there's a temperature in empty space. It's a very, very cold minimum temperature, much, much colder than the universe today or anything we have ever made in the laboratory today. But it's not zero, and it lasts forever. So my idea, building on this making new universes hope, is to say that among the fluctuations, you know, we said that in empty space there are fluctuations due to quantum mechanics. You can't pin things down. Einstein says that among the fluctuations is space-time itself. The curvature of space can fluctuate. Uh, the very fabric of space and time wobbles around a little bit in the quantum mechanical state that the, early, that the future universe will find itself in. So what I'm hoping, and there's some equations to back this up, but it's very, very far from established, is that from this configuration of empty space, it can rip apart that a little bit of universe can actually pinch off from the rest, sort of egg-shaped <laughs> bit of universe, can actually sort of form a bubble that disconnects from the entire rest of space. So it's not even, it's not talking to the rest of the universe at all. It's just a new little bubble of universe. And clearly it's going to be easier to make a small bubble than a big bubble. And if there's energy in that universe, it can expand and it will smooth itself out if it has the right form of energy in it. And then that energy will convert into matter and radiation at a high temperature and cool off just like the Big Bang. So what I'm proposing is that through the quantum fluctuations of space and time in our far future, included in those fluctuations are not only brains and galaxies, but baby universes, little tiny universes that will expand to become as big as you want. This is the great thing about general relativity. It costs no energy to do this. It's not like, well, you don't have enough oomph mm -hmm. to make a universe. Making a universe costs exactly nothing. The hope is that it's actually easier to make a universe than it is to make a brain or a person. It's exactly the opposite of what Carl Sagan was saying. Uh, it would be just easier to make universes, and that's why we find ourselves in the aftermath of this warm, comfortable Big Bang. Let me ask the obvious question. 
okay, uh, baby universes budding off or bubbling off of the mother universe. This mother universe, by the way, lifeless and empty, empty and cold. cold, frozen tundra. But baby universe somehow springs up. How does it get low entropy enough to set in motion, you know, the evolution we see in our own universe? Well, the idea is that it is born with low entropy. It doesn't evolve into low entropy. It's just easier to make low entropy universes from the pre-existing universe than to make high entropy ones. So when you what you should calculate, what you should imagine uh, keeping track of is the entropy of the parent universe plus the entropy of the baby universe. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a more believable physical process to create a low entropy new universe added to the entropy that you already had. That's a small increase overall in entropy. And then that universe can expand and the entropy can go up forever and ever. So it's just the fact that the entropy increases smoothly in the multiverse, in the collection of parent universe plus baby universes, that implies that it'll be easier to make early baby, you know, just born zygote universes <laughs> in a low entropy state rather than in a high entropy state. So you haven't violated the second law of thermodynamics overall. In other words, the total uh, a- aggregate of all these universes, the mom universe and all the baby universes, the em- entropy is still increasing. Yes. A random fluctuation allowed for a little bit of low entropy in the baby universe, and that's just enough to get the whole process of uh, of of universe development going. Exactly, yes. The universe business. That's right. And it, it, it's like a bubble-making machine, and it never turns off is the idea. And so a, a, a motto is the reason why entropy is increasing around us is because entropy can always increase. There is no state that you finally hit and then stop moving. You can always make more universes. You can always create more entropy. And we're just riding that wave of the multiverse making more and more entropy. I think you quote uh, Richard Feynman, the great physicist, as having said, you can find a universe in a glass of wine. I think maybe you want to amend that to a glass of champagne. Yes, that's right. The bubbles play a crucial role here, uh, both intoxicating and uh, useful. That's right. And I hope this program has been both intoxicating and useful. You can read a more complete exposition of Sean Carroll's ideas about time in his latest book, From Eternity to Here, The Quest for the Ultimate Theory of Time. You can also read him in the popular physics blog, Cosmic Variance, where he appears regularly. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll rematerialize here again next week, at least the odds favor it. And if you miss us in the meantime, you can visit us online at 7thAvenueProject.com. ¶¶